I don't know about you, but that song really penetrates me. It hits a pretty deep place inside me. That line, how could it come to this? I really want to know about this. Tell me, how did it come to this? That line grabs me. That's the line of my heart when I look around the world right now. How did it come to be like this? I really want to know. How, how can it be that one in seven children in Minnesota live in poverty, go to bed hungry, and that that poverty, that, that force will shape and mold their lives in horrible ways, terrible ways. These are children just like my son, just like my wife and I. We have a son. He's almost three years old. They're children just like him. They're children like the children who were in here with us, who sang, who are now in their classes learning from one another. How has it come to this? How has it come to be that in this country there are 46 million people, 46 million people living below the poverty level? That's a family of four that makes less than $22,000 a year. That is one in six Americans. That's us. That's friends we know. That's family. That's uncles, brothers, sisters, grandparents. That is us. Don't get hung up on the numbers. 46 million is mind-boggling. But just imagine that your day is shaped by the choice of, will I pay the electric bill or have food for my children? Your day, your life, your child's life is shaped by this reality of, okay, I know at least at school this person will have something to eat. Imagine having to make those choices. Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe you're there or have been there. How has it come to this? I really want to know. How has it come to this? How has our moral compass gotten so whacked out? Our political system so perverted by moneyed interests? Our politicians posturing and playing games while people suffer? Isn't there a different vision, a better way? I really want to know. I really want to know about this. I trust I'm not alone with these questions. I trust I'm not the only one in this space with those kind of questions. You've come into this space with your own questions. Maybe they're more personal, of more personal nature, these questions of how did it come to this around your own life. Maybe you're here this morning feeling a deep sense of unhappiness around your marriage or your job or a lack of a job or the way your life has unfolded. Maybe you're looking for deeper meaning and purpose, a different, deeper well to drink from, and you're just not finding it, and you're thinking, how did it come to this? I really want to know. I really would like to know about this. Or maybe you're more like me, and you're thinking about the country and the world right now, that global picture. Maybe you're wondering, how, how did we get into these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan again? Can you tell me about the $3 billion we're spending every week in those wars? Maybe you're thinking, I wonder what that would do in North Minneapolis, $3 billion, or Detroit, or New Orleans, or for the children of this country. 
Maybe you're thinking, maybe you're in the pew and you're thinking, how did, how did we decide, when did we decide that it was just okay to exploit and mine and pollute this planet? When did we, when did we decide that profits were more important than people and this amazing blue-green earth of ours? Maybe you're just thinking, yeah, I would really like to know about this. How, how did it come to this? Here's the thing I know. I don't know exactly what you're thinking, what you're feeling. I don't want to assume to know what you're thinking or feeling. But if you really listen to that song, if you really sit with your heart and your eyes open and walk with your heart and your eyes open in this world of ours, I don't think you cannot ask the question, how did it come to this? And behind that question, at least for me, I trust for you, that question of how did it come to this, I'd really like to know about this. Behind that question is what? Grief, anger, despair, disbelief. How did it come to this? How did it come to this? How is it possible with the wealth and prosperity of this world that one in six children, one in seven in in Minnesota, is in poverty, that one in six in this country is in poverty, families? How is that possible? It's like we want to sit down with the big guy, the big manager, the big person in charge, whoever it is, and say, yo, dude, (laughs) Yo, I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on, but it's, it's a wreck. And I, I'm curious sort of how it, how it got here. But that's a question we need to ask ourselves. We need to look back to the sacred scriptures of the world's religions, of the Jewish and Christian tradition, because if we look to those scriptures, if we listen to the whisper of God or love's whisper, whatever you want to call it, that spirit of life that moves among us, if we listen to that, we will know. We will know deep in our hearts that we have been using the wrong map to orient and guide our lives, to guide our decisions. And that's how we've got here. It's a pattern that moves through history. We adopt the wrong map and live from that that map for a while, and then finally the spirit of life or our own awakening consciousness says, there's got to be a different map a different way to orient. And we have been using, I'll call it the popular consumer culture map, we've been using that for far too long, and it's killing us. Here's why that popular consumer map is killing us. The core values that that map gives us, the values it gives us to live and and shape and guide our lives and these are the values we'll be exploring over the next four, five Sundays, this Sunday and four more, and looking at alternatives to these five values. But those five values that that map gives us, here's they are. Here they are. I'll say them twice because I just want you to hear them, know that we'll unpack them. Here's those five values, and we're going to offer alternatives. The first is exclusivity. Exclusivity. The second is fear. Exclusivity, fear. Third, ego gratification. Exclusivity, fear, ego gratification. The fourth one is guilt, and the last one is greed. Hear those again. Hear those again. Exclusivity, fear, ego gratification, guilt, 
and greed. Totally. I... <laughs> we need a new map. I'm with you. Just, just hear those again, because I think I've been sitting with this for a while, thinking about this sermon series, and at first I was like, no, yeah, that's not really the map. And now I'm pretty sure that that's the map inadvertently I've been participating in. It's not a right or a wrong thing. There's not blame here, but that's the big overlay on our, on our culture, those, those set of values, I think. Exclusivity, fear, ego gratification, guilt, and greed. And the trouble with those values, the real heart of the matter is those values, if they're on the map that's orienting our lives, telling us who and how we should be in the world, those values lead us to ask the wrong kind of questions. As the Reverend Jim Wallace says, television, magazines, our whole popular culture in ad after ad asks us, what's the fastest way to make money? What do you need to buy next that will make you truly happy and help you stand out a little bit from other people? What is wrong with you, and how could you change that? And then this question, asked in all sorts of really subtle ways, what should you be afraid of? And here's some of the things I wrote down in my notes on that last one. What should you be afraid of? Well, aging, wrinkles, definitely fear that. Got to be afraid you're going to smell. That's pretty important not to smell publicly. Don't want to have a bad hair day. Be afraid of the bad hair day. And we're laughing, right? Because ha, 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 ha. Like, those are, like, it's true. And, right? And those questions are nowhere even in the ballpark around the real kind of questions that help us live a life of meaning and purpose where we feel grounded in something. A life that helps us become better people. Those questions aren't even in that ballpark. But that's the map that we're sort of living in right now. Right in this, what I'm going to call an apocalyptic moment. You heard me right. (laughs) An apocalyptic moment. And I want to say to uh, the friends who are here, especially that you invited, and all of you really, we're not that kind of church. I'm not going to go off and like, start talking about the apocalypse. But here's what I mean. <laughs> you're like, whoo, you're like, man, why did I invite this person? <laughs> like, what is my minister doing? <laughs> we don't believe in the apocalypse. We don't believe in the apocalypse. But this, is an apocalyptic, but this is an apocalyptic moment. And let me tell you what I mean by that. What I mean is that the root of the word apocalypse means an unveiling. It means a revealing, right? So we are living in a time right now where some things are becoming very, very clear. There's this unveiling. There's this revealing. The old map with those values of exclusivity and fear and greed and ego gratification, that map is coming into view really clearly. So it's led us to this point where there's this movement around the globe right now of people saying, this is enough. And so when I look at what's going on with the Occupy Wall Street movement and these movements around the country and the world, those people are essentially saying, okay, as a country, we've been living and operating from this consumer culture map, this popular map, for too long. And it's, it's not working anymore. And I want to tell you, having visited many of the people down at the People's Plaza, the government square, this is not a movement of dirty hippies, as the media might have you think it is. 
it truly is not. There were teachers down there who brought their students to understand the issues, to talk to other people. There were people of faith down there. There were families and students and professors and unemployed folks and a whole bunch of other people. And they are saying, essentially, it is time for a different map. It is time for a different set of principles and values that come from that different map. Those people down in Minneapolis and in Wall Street, they are witnessing. They are witnessing to a different set of values and principles. So given that context, I think it is a perfect time to start this five-week series and dig into the spirit map and the values that it lifts up. And that's what we'll be doing so that those values can be named and we can have them take root in our lives and we will be different people as a result. So today, it starts with this, exclusivity or hospitality. And it's really about, if you boil it down, it's about who's in and who's out, who's welcomed and who's not, who is seen and who are we blind to, who is acceptable and who is unacceptable. Here's the thing about hospitality, the core spiritual value around hospitality. It suggests that people are not objects, or its, or means to ends. It says people are actually amazing. They're, they're a miracle. They're, they're the face of God, perhaps, in this world, and they have value, and they matter. So that means we welcome, <laughs> and we greet, and acknowledge strangers, or people different from ourselves, when we are around them. And you know how much this matters, right? If you've ever been a stranger in a land, if you've traveled abroad somewhere, or if you've moved to a different neighborhood, or your kids have started in a new school, or you've started a new job, you know, and if you say you don't know, you're lying, (laughs) I think, you know how much it matters when someone extends that welcome to you, when they reach out to you, when they say, hey, hi, I see you, I notice you're here, can I orient you, can I tell you what's going on in the neighborhood, can I introduce you to some friends? It feels so good feels so good. But there's another reason for hospitality, which I hinted at earlier. The Bible and many other ancient stories point to this often. They say, you shall love the stranger because the stranger shows you God or that spirit of life. The stranger who shows up just might be God, him or her or itself. And in that encounter, you have an encounter with the divine. There's something magical, powerful that happens in that space. So what that means is hospitality, as opposed to exclusivity, is about a kind of kinship, an authentic, holy engagement with another person. It is about collapsing the walls that separate us and casting the circle of welcome wider and then wider still. Let me share some stories with you. Earlier this week, I was talking with a church member, someone who's been here a long time, and he told me that it is his personal practice to connect with folks on Sunday morning. This is personal practice to connect with folks on Sunday morning who look lost downstairs in the the coffee hour. So if this has been you, I apologize. We are going to get better at our hospitality. But he looks for those people. He says it's really easy to see them because they have a cup, and they're kind of like looking around like, whoa, I don't really know how things work here. And it's not a great place to be. 
So he, he greets them, he engages them, he talks to them, he asks questions, he introduces them to other people. And he, he, when we were talking this week, he said, it's amazing to watch this sense of relief just kind of flood through their body. This sense of, wow, somebody noticed, somebody saw me, somebody engaged me. Rachel Naomi Remen, an author and teacher that I love, says this, the places in which we are seen and heard are holy places. The places in which we are seen and heard are holy places. They remind us of our value as human beings. Whenever hospitality is practiced, that space becomes a holy space. It reminds me of a story from Kathleen Norris, another author I love, and this story is one of those stories that I just can't get out of my head. It's just sort of stuck in my head, so I want to share it and get it stuck in your heads <laughs> so it'll be passed on, maybe. Maybe that's the point. It'll be passed on. She writes, Not long ago, I met a young woman who spoke of a nun with Alzheimer's in her monastery community. Every day, this young woman told Kathleen, this nun insists on being placed in her wheelchair at the entrance to the monastery's nursing home so that she can greet everyone who comes in. This young woman goes on to say she is no longer certain what she is welcoming people to, but hospitality is so deeply ingrained in her that it has become her whole life. As Kathleen Norris says, better an old fool welcoming people at the door with her whole heart and soul than a distracted or cold monk or nun with faculties intact. (laughs) Hospitality reflects a deep love and a deep curiosity about the person in front of you, about the stranger. Exclusivity, on the other hand, says only some belong, only some are worth my time, only some are worthy. Or to put it even more bluntly, I'm just fine, I've got mine, you're not welcome. And I really believe that because we know how much it matters when we're welcomed, we know that it matters when we're welcomed ourselves, especially when we're strangers, we actually want to practice hospitality in our lives. We would like to do that more and more. And we need to move into the spirit map to do that. But it's something we long for. As Greg Boyle, a Jesuit priest, another author I love, says, our common human hospitality longs to find room for those who are left out. It's just who we are. It's just who we are, hospitality people, if we're allowed to foster something different. So if we're in the spirit map, which is where hospitality lives, then our natural desire to reach out, to connect with others who are left out, that desire can blossom, can flourish. So I want you, I want you all to imagine with me. This is, a, this is a group imagination process. Imagine with me what it might look like if all of us here, everybody who's in this sanctuary right now, if we really started to live our lives from that place of radical hospitality. That would mean smiling at strangers. 
That would mean looking eye to eye with people. That would mean engaging them. I just thought of this, but you can practice right after the service. You can start that part right there. <laughs> and imagine with me beyond, beyond these walls. Imagine how we might welcome our neighbors, the neighbors who are represented all over that map with different languages. How we might hear their hopes and dreams and engage them. And imagine this. Imagine this with me. If we really started to embody this practice of hospitality, how that might influence our children. Imagine that it's our children. Imagine it's our children in schools who reach out to those who are new in the school, who reach out to those who are bullied or marginalized. Imagine it's our children who welcome the stranger with compassion and curiosity, who turn the school hallways or the playgrounds into holy places because hospitality is being practiced there. And imagine that our children do that because we have such a deep practice ourselves and they see us engaging neighbors and strangers and others that it becomes second nature to them. Imagine with me, if you will, that day after day we wake up reminding ourselves that hospitality is about seeing others, welcoming them, and making that space, that encounter, a holy space. Are you imagining with me? A little bit? So with that mindset, with that mindset that any space could be a sacred space, a holy space, what that means is that a soup kitchen or the Habitat for Humanity project we're working on or one of our small groups or even coffee hour after the service can become a holy place. Any place where hospitality is practiced can become a holy place. We can meet and encounter the divine wherever we are, whenever we reach out to a stranger. May we start reaching. May it be so, and amen.